Limited mileage. Welcome, come, come, come to, to, to the limited, limited, limited mileage, mileage podcast. Hi, my name is Greg Hoy. This is my podcast, Limited Mileage. Welcome. What day is it? What month is it? What season is it? These are all honest questions right now. I can't begin to tell you how excited I am to let you hear, to be a part of the conversation I had with Jack Rabbit. Jack is a champion. Uh, he's a bit of a hero of mine. He is a polymath. I actually used that word in the podcast, and I'm using it now in the introduction. He's run an incredible magazine, Big Takeover, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary uh, this May of its first issue. We talk a lot about that. He is an accomplished drummer and musician. Me interviewing Jack isn't unlike me playing basketball with Michael Jordan. He's just the top of the game. It would be like trying to drink with Robert Pollard, maybe. Jack is an encyclopedia of knowledge. There was no way I could prepare for Jack in a way that to me would have served the amount of knowledge he has about music, culture, politics, New York City. Am I gushing too much? Anyway, I'm excited for you to hear this podcast. Also, because Jack is so generous with himself, his time, this turned into about three hours. We had some technical problems. The internet's been intermittent. It's been fickle because a lot of people are using it right now. But I'm cutting the podcast into two parts. So what you're going to hear today is part one. Um... It's fantastic. Jack's fantastic. I could literally listen to him talk. And you can. You could check out the Big Takeover show. He's like got almost 300 episodes of that. You should definitely check out the Big Takeover magazine. Um, but let me take a pause. I met Jack around 2002 in Brooklyn. And it was right around the time I had decided to do my own record my own album and i i had something called pro tools free and you could record eight tracks with it and i spent a couple months in our rehearsal space in williamsburg brooklyn by myself writing and recording 10 songs or so by myself i already said that it was all me let's put it that way and uh i put it out and made a little cd that's back when you made cds and i sent it it's funny, I remember working at an ad agency, and I remember printing out CD covers and so forth after hours at the ad agency, because they had these awesome color printers in 2002. And uh, I had been turned on to the big takeover, unbeknownst to me until that time. It had already been around for a little over 20 years. And it was this thick Bible of a tome and all it did, 
it turned me on to so many great bands. It was one of those things, there's no Google, there's no Pinterest, there's no anything. There was the big takeover. And to, to, to jump in for me midstream, but it was brand new to me, it was kind of exactly why it is so relevant. It was a gateway to so many amazing artists. And Jack is the reason for that. And Jack reviewed that first record I made, and he gave me such confidence. Because at that point, I'd moved to New York. I was playing with other bands. I was a side person. I was an engineer recording The Last Town Chorus and F Units and probably three or four other bands, Steve's, Steve LaPuma's bands. And... Um, that was my moment. The moment that that magazine came out, remember, there was nothing online. There was no online, really. I mean, there was, but there wasn't. And Jack uh, said such nice things about me. And it was just, it was the beginning of something for me on an artistic level, which was, even though I felt like I was sort of in a bubble, I realized other people were out there making art, paying attention. Anyway. I'm gushing. And when I started this podcast uh, earlier, uh, a couple weeks ago, um, Jack was on my, he was like number one on my list of people that I wanted to ask. So when he said yes, I told my wife, I was like, I, I, I'm nervous about this. And I don't get nervous. I really don't. I don't get nervous. Um, I lack the nervous gene. But it's Jack Rabbit, man. And then... As I got to know him back in the 2000s, living in New York City myself, I realized all these people that I respected from my working at the Village Voice and, and in the writing world, they were talking about the big takeover and Jack. So what a crazy roundabout way to, uh, to tell you, thank you, Jack, for all you've done, all you do. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Here he is. The one, the only, Jack Rabbit. All right, and welcome to the Limited Mileage Podcast. I am here today with uh, arguably the the most, uh, I, I'll call him a champion, uh, and a true polymath, Jack Rabbit. Hello, Jack. Oh, that's nice of you. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we before the red light went on, we talked a little about this uh, very unique situation we all seem to be finding ourselves in. And you're in Brooklyn right now. Yeah, we're in the epicenter, so it's not like I can ignore it. Right. Um, I am curious how, as someone who's been in New York City for so long, how are you... I don't want to talk too much about it, but how does it feel to see um, the community aspect of being a New Yorker, how that has shifted since this whole thing started? It's hard to gauge because I'm stuck indoors for three to four weeks now without going out. I mean, I've been out once and it's impossible to take the temperature of any place you are if you never leave your house. On the other hand, at seven o'clock every night, we hear people screaming and banging pots and pans and we go out ourselves to the front stoop and do likewise, which is about all we can do while we're stuck indoors is at least express our extreme appreciation for the people who are risking their lives for us. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the I was in New York when this all went down. I was supposed to be there for 10 days and then, you know, flew back, you know, after three days of being out there, not thinking it would get this quote unquote bad. But I think one of the things that I miss being out here on the West Coast now is is that feeling of, you know, not to bring up 9-11 or, or the blackout, but that feeling that everyone's kind of in it together and we're close to each other. I think I still feel it only because we live in a different era than the Spanish flu in that we all have the internet. And, uh, you know, they barely even had telephones back in 1918. So we can at least hear our neighbors, you know, that we're friends with speaking and stay in contact with them. Can you imagine this a hundred years ago when people were just stuck in their homes and couldn't talk to anybody? No. <laughs> must, must have been really very different. We, no television, I mean, barely any radio, you know. We're in an area where the internet occasionally just drops out. It's, you know, we're a little bit outside of uh, yeah. the urban there, environment. There and I am just, connection. right. And I'm just like, if this goes, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, we're in trouble. But anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on that. I'm so grateful that uh, you said yes to doing the podcast. And I'll tell you why. Um, I became aware of the big takeover when I first moved to New York City around 99, 2000. And it was one of those things where, how can I put it? When you're in like grade school and you meet someone else that like listens to the same bands you do and you feel that instant kinship, I felt that way about your magazine. Like I felt like, I felt like someone got me. Well, nice to meet you then. (laughs) That's been, that's actually been one of the reasons I'm still doing it because, uh, you know, if it was just something pedantic or an intellectual exercise, I would have quit like 35 years ago. Right. But, But there is that connection and it's one of the greater things about sharing music. You know, music is genuine culture. It's, uh, it's not like, I don't want to disparage people who collect stamps or something because to each their own passions. But um, we are exchanging artworks here and expressing, you know, cultural appreciation. And I've said this before, but I was in the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, looking at instruments from, I don't know, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Every culture, uh, every country has musicians. Every culture has singing and dancing, you know, in some form or another. It's absolutely warp and woof of the human existence. Now I try to I try to think we're we're not really doing anything anywhere near that profound or anything. Right. But it does show its continual importance to the human condition. I think that's you say it well, like that that idea, that need to connect to people, regardless of, you know, even whether we have the internet or not, that that doesn't go away. The yeah. medium. And look what people are using the internet for. I mean, apart from checking Facebook or getting news updates. A lot of people are, are watching YouTube or going on Spotify or, or watching people's, you know, podcasts. I, I watched uh, Neil Young the other day, you know, walk out of his house in the snow playing a song on the acoustic guitar and singing. And then a second later, I was with him in his you know, study watching him sing one of my favorite old songs on the piano. It was like, it was me and him, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so that made me feel a little better despite being stuck in the house. It was like, well, I didn't get to go out of the house, but I did go visit Neil Young today <laughs> in <Right>. Colorado. <laughs> Do you think, you know, because I've seen a lot of, it's funny you say that because I've seen a lot of people playing Neil Young songs on the internet right now. <laughs> well, there's um, Neil Young playing a Neil Young song. And there's Neil Even Young. better. 
what what are we trading off? And I don't want to get too deep too soon, but like, what are we trading off when we don't have like, you know, a thousand people or 10,000 people around us experiencing that same moment? Like humans are humans are social animals. You know, if you go to the zoo and you see other social animals like uh, like chimpanzees or something, or if you go to the aquarium and watch dolphins interact, a lot of animals are quite social. They get lonely if they lose their partner, you know, like uh, like two cats who've been together all their lives. One of them dies, you can see his personality change in the other one. Again, without trying to make a big, you know, giant point of it. Uh, we're only here on the planet for a finite amount of time. And the things that tend to move us the most are the things that we share with other people. You know, the most profound things are, are you know, obviously things of life and death. But apart from that, it's just, you know, the absolute uh, feeling of being moved when you experience something with somebody else. And without, you know, having to be a boyfriend or girlfriend, you can be with your best friend at a concert. And both of you being moved to tears, you know, by a performance or, you know, sitting in the living room at a teenage juncture like I was down in my friend's basement, you know, listening to like a Clash record or a Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers record with three or four of my friends and being so uncannily thrilled to my bones that it, you know, changed my life forever. And it would have done it anyway when I brought the record home. I felt excited about that too. But what is it I remember? I don't remember sitting in my bedroom listening to the Ramones. I remember sitting in Jeff Hutchinson's basement listening right. to the Ramones with Dave Stein and Jeff Hutchinson and Janet Whitehouse in 1978. Right. Well, that, that registers in my memory far stronger because we were experiencing it together. And when I went and found a copy of the adverts, you know, um, first album, what did I do? I ran straight over to Jeff's house to play it for the other people. And then they brought their albums that they got. And, you know, we had a little scene. Totally. People always talk about music scenes as opposed to bands, you know, like as much as people like the replacements, they came out of a music scene and there were other great bands in many Minneapolis, like Husker Du or Loud Fast Rules or, you know, any of those groups, Ground, Ground Zero. So it's it's interesting when like a band like Man Size Action or, or much later Baby Astronauts or whomever, they were all part of that thing and they were right. all playing together and they were sharing like kind of information and the people they knew would come to their gigs and voila, you had something really interesting to do on a Saturday night at Goofy's Upper Deck. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go there. Or, or what, the Longhorn um, Ballroom. <laughs> And that's so, not even my scene, you know, that's somebody else's. But the fact that I'm interested in it these many years later just goes to show how powerful it is that we're social animals and we share things together. We can't and, do that right now. You know, I don't coming out of that, you know, you're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the magazine. Which yeah, next month sometime. Congratulations, first of all. <laughs> I wish I knew what day it was. It would be really fun. You know, a little Wait. birthday cake or something. <laughs> Tell me a little about the inspiration there where you were such a, you know, you, you were part of something and that inspired you to, you know, put in the effort and get other people involved through the use of a physical, you know, thing. I can't take the credit. I'll give it all to David Stein, the late David Stein. He's dead now about five years he was my best friend since I was in kindergarten. And uh, in 1977, he got into David Bowie with, with Jeff Hutchinson and Janet Whitehouse and those folks. 
And he just insisted that I like David Bowie and I kept resisting. <laughs> I kept saying, no, that guy's a freak. Have you seen the pictures of him? He's a, he's a complete, you know, uh, weirdo. I don't want to like a weirdo. Why would I do that? And he just kept <laughs> insisting. And one day he lent me a copy of, um, of Changes One Bowie, which was the new best of. And I was 15 years old, you know, and living in the suburbs, living a completely vanilla, uninteresting and un ununique existence. And I put on this record every day and every day I hated it. <laughs> and <laughs> and the, the fifth day I said, well, why do I keep playing this record every day if I hate it? You know, that doesn't make any sense. Stupid, you know, ninth grader that I was. Yeah. And then it just dawned on me. I didn't actually hate it, that I was trying to hate it because right. it was a weirdo guy and I was resisting, you know, doing, taking a chance like that. I, I liked just being a normal person. And then I, I remember kind of like hitting my head with my palm, like you do going like, Oh no, <laughs> don't tell me I like this weirdo. <laughs> I have to admit it. Oh gosh, darn it. I tried so hard not to. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I came to Dave and I said, I liked it, what does he do? He slips me a copy of heroes and a copy of low. <laughs> and, and that stuff is like 10 times weirder, you know, especially right. the, the side twos. Cause that's what, you know, that was Bowie's new albums, you know? And then I really went off the deep end when I realized I even liked the instrumental sides of those two albums. I'm like, uh, my, I, I can't, I don't, I can't fathom what's going on here. You know, it was like it was happening without me. Right. And so next thing I know, I'm part of this larger group of Dave and these other friends he has, and they become my friends. And we start reading every article you can about David Bowie. And next thing you know, we're buying Lou Reed and Iggy Pop records and Brian Eno records because those are David's closest associates and Mata Hoople because he produced them. Then we're reading articles about them and scouring in, you know, every place to look for Stooges records and, and stuff like that, even though we're, we're way out of print. But somebody would find a tape somewhere. We'd find like a French import gatefold or something. You know, it was, when you have five or six people looking for the same records, even if it takes you four or five months, eventually somebody scores. And then um, – now we're fans of them. And then we're sitting in Jeff's basement, you know, reading these magazines like Hit Parader and Cream and even Rolling Stone a little bit and uh, Trouser Press. And they keep talking about how these artists we like are the godfathers of this new sound called punk rock. Right. So we're like, we must like punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny being 15, 16, you know, you don't know anything about anything. And so then next thing you know, we're buying New York dolls and Ramones and Sex Pistols and Patti Smith. And the, the floodgates just opened. And now we're buying like $2 clothing and scrolling things on it, you know, to make it look uh, unique. I, I remember I bought a jacket at a thrift store for $3 and I insisted on wearing it inside out because <laughs> nice. I really liked the lining. It was just crazy. We were just having fun, you know, and from that, next thing you know, Dave says to me one day, uh, we got to go into New York. That's where it's happening. I go, yeah, all those bands are playing there. So we're like 16, 16 years old. We're going to see the Talking Heads in XTC at the Beacon Theater. I mean, that's a pretty good thing to do in 1978 at the age of 16. It's really exciting. And it and feels we, then like- we saw everybody over, over the next three years. It feels like all of this, there was no one there to tell you it was right or wrong. Well, there was plenty of people to tell me it was wrong. I got told I was wrong pretty much three or four times a day. Because once you actually start wearing the funny clothes, 
and start telling everybody about this music that you've discovered, then you become like the alien from planet Xenon. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, now they're resisting you instead of me resisting David Bowie. I was threatening to them, even though I was just perfectly, you know, happy go lucky and excited. Yeah. I was, I was never the sneering punk. I was always like, my gosh, you know, ring the bell. Hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> Paul Revere, get on your horse. This is amazing. <laughs> it feels, the idea alert, of, the, alert idea of, the countrymen. The idea of what punk is has always been like, um, I feel like it's been misconstrued by the marketing that went around it, like the hot topics of the world. And it feels well, like- later. Yeah. You know, I'm speaking about the 70s when it was more of a whisper. It wasn't a yep. commercial entity yet. Yep. I mean, even just Elvis Costello having- commercials on the TV for some reason for his first album. You know, people who just got really freaked out and weirded out by that because he just looked so strange to them. And he was, <laughs> you know, pretty tame compared to, you know, Johnny Rotten. As yeah. much, as I, much as I love the first three Elvis records. Um, all I can tell you is in short order, once once the cat was out of the bag, we were just getting in the car or getting on the train, going to New York City like two or three times a week. Yeah, trying to scrounge up every dime we could for the train fare and to go in and see a show, you know. And we saw everybody, and we got to know people who were New Yorkers, you know, instead of us suburbanites. And pretty soon we were crashing at their houses, and we were meeting punk rock girls, which was really nice, you know, for a yep. seventeen-year-old. And they <laughs> they were older and more sophisticated and urban and and more, you know, obviously sexually active. So it was like full immersion. And just total excitement all the time. I'm sitting there hanging out with people in the bands, you know, who made the records. Like we went backstage at the Clash in uh, 1979 because they would just open up the backstage at the end of the gig. Can you imagine Amazing. Led Zeppelin doing that? Amazing. You know, for anybody who wanted to come in, not just for like you know hot chicks or something like that. Right. So, so there I am sitting there talking to Joe Strummer about Larry Williams and uh, Vince Taylor and the Playboys. You know, because. I, I knew he liked fifties rock and roll, same as I did from reading his interviews. And he appreciated right. that I knew something about him and that we had this thing to talk about other than God, the clash are great. And pretty soon we were talking for like 20 minutes and he, he was telling me these great stories about how the one on first gig, their first song was a Larry Williams cover. And again, we're back to what you were saying. You end up having these great interactions with people and it's extra thrilling. And I think about that now that Joe is dead, that I once spent, 12 hours with him one day, just interviewing him all day long, you know, yeah. turning the tape on and off and just having fun with him. And he was a really cool guy. You could do that with punk rock. You couldn't do that if you like Steely Dan or something, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't go backstage at Madison square garden and just walk in and start up a conversation about, um, I don't know, um, Hank Williams or something. Right. So, so out of that came this desire to start the magazine uh, again, completely, apart from me because David Stein said to me one day, we should do a, a fanzine about David Johansson because we were big New York Dolls fans. And I said, huh? She goes, yeah, I'm going to do it. You want to help me? And I'm like, I, I don't think that's a good idea, Dave. Uh, I mean, he's really popular. You know, his records are in the charts now with these animals covers. Uh, don't you think the bands that we're going to see, like the Stimulators and the Bad Brains, and the mad, they could use a little attention instead of a big, you know, kind of quasi rock star like that. And he says, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it was that simple. Wow. And uh, he came over to my house and he wrote a bunch of stuff on a piece of paper. And then I added a bunch of stuff and then I typed it up and 
we we signed it and it was one page of a of a eight and a half by eleven piece of paper and we didn't write anything on the back. And that was issue one in, in June of nineteen eighty. <laughs> wow. But we had the idea in, I think in late May, because we just played our first gig, Dave and I, in our band on May the second, nineteen eighty. That's a date I actually do know. We nice. played a tier tier three opening for the stimulators. So it's just like this endless escalation of wanting to get more and more involved. Yeah. When does it go from we're going down to the print shop to make copies to oh oh well we didn't do that that's what oh, I mean but uh, that was I, way I'm, I'm, way too sophisticated for a couple of dumb <laughs> suburbanists we went to the local public library in Summit New Jersey where we lived and we put in dimes man and it would take about forty <laughs> seconds per copy so yeah. this little line would form behind us while the thing was going ring ring ring. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible to explain to kids today, 1980 right. printer, printer technology, but I'd never heard of a copy shop. Even in Manhattan, they had like two in Got 1980. It. it was a real new technology. My dad had a little kind of uh, like quasi copier in his office, which again would take about two minutes per copy. Right. And uh, in schools, they had, you know, the blue ink thing, that uh, mimeograph right. machine. Right. Well, you couldn't even read the print, so they always had to put some of the questions on the test on the board. Like question number seven, that third word is, you know, uh, photosynthesis. <laughs> it was it again. There's no computers. There's no personal computers of any kind. We'd right. seen like giant computers that would take up an entire room a few years before that on a field trip. It's just typing. That's all we had was typewriters and and what few copy machines we knew to exist. But when we made up our first 100 copies, we brought it in, and that's when the stimulator's manager took a couple and said, uh, if you want to print more, I know of, of a copy shop on 8th Street. Got it. And then tell me, like, what's the next thing? Like, are you like, oh, I guess we should do this again? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> are you kidding me? Why would we do that again? <laughs> right. That's what I mean. Like, at what point does it, is it like, okay, this is like, there's a road here for me. Like, how does that kind of, well, we, when does that start to take effect for you? We spent the rest of 1980 mostly playing gigs with our band, um, culminating in two absolutely wild shows with the Bad Brains uh, before they were Rastas even, December Amazing. 27th and 26th, 1980, right after Christmas. And that was, it was such a small scene that even Bad Brains gigs back then used to draw like 8,500 people, 150, of which half of them would be our little punk scene of 50, 60 of us who went to yeah. every punk rock gig. And the rest was kind of cool that there was a little interest beyond that in a band like Bad Brains. Same thing with Stimulators. They'd play for two, 300 people, including us for 50 or 60 regulars and some stragglers. So yeah. we joined that. We became like the third band on the scene. And then by the end of 1980, we played a gig with False Prophets and the undead formed and uh you know that's what we did but the whole time that we would give away this one copy that we'd done when donald being the stimulators manager just kept reaching in his own pocket and making more of them because it was good for his band right <laughs> and it was fine by me you know let it was cheaper than a dime each it was more like two cents each and and fine it wasn't out of my you know skint pocket so he kept handing me more to give away and I was meeting more people that way. Some of those people come in the bad brains, stimulators and mad gigs or stiff roll fingers or buzzcocks or whoever, or, you know, we would just hand these things to people and then they join our little scene too. 
And they keep saying like, hey, when are you going to do issue number two? And I just kept saying like, huh? What, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean issue two? And uh, Dave, you know, ended up in September going to Boston College. So I didn't even get to see him so much anymore. But uh, around October, I just thought, you know, I'm getting so many requests. Maybe I should just do another one. And Donald said like, yeah, you really should. We need another issue. There's been plenty more that's happened since June. Yeah. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I guess I could type up something. He goes, I'll print it for you. Sold, you know, easy, easy peasy. So we did, I think, five more issues that way. They were now uh, eight and a half by 14 folded over to make four small pages. That was Donald, Donald's big in innovation. And then he sent them all to people on his stimulators mailing list. So I ended up with more friends. I was just suddenly like, you know, uh, overcome with friends. It was so much fun. Yeah. And then I had a falling out with the stimulators uh, in part because they started printing things in the magazine that I didn't write. And that really ticked things I didn't even agree with. And then they'd sign my name to it. So I said, I'm not, I am separating my ties here. That's not cool. And after that, I got a job at a um, shipping firm in the World Trade Center where I worked for three years. And I used to just use their copy machine. Yes. So for a couple of years, of, uh, I put out the magazine there and it was, you know, five or 10 pages and it was free because I, I, I wasn't paying for it. So I didn't feel like I should charge anybody. So right. for the first 10 or 11 uh, issues, we'd just leave stacks at Blicker Bob's Records, hand them to people at gigs. It was just fun. We were having fun. The whole thing was just having fun. Still yeah. is. Well, you know, one of the things you brought up was the, the, the idea that they were taking these out without you and just kind of giving them to people. Did you start to see more of a wider regional, like people were getting in touch with you somehow? Like, did you, how did people like get into you to say, Hey, I have a band or, Hey, do you want to write about me? When did that kind of start to happen? Um, there was a couple of quantum leaps. Uh, Donald would send these things to other fanzines, you know, again, trying to get them to be interested in his band and the bad brains and mad, mad cause we were all friends. And some of the other new bands like Nasty Facts and the Awfuls and um, the the Pre Beastie Boys. Uh, I forgot their name. Um, no, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember. No, I Somebody can't could look I that up. Read the book. Somebody could look that up. He's, oh, Young Young Aborigines, because they they, they were formed by our singer, even worse, the singer, uh, the late John Barry. When he stopped singing for us because Dave went to college, uh, he started that band, and then they became the Beastie Boys, and he was their guitarist on their first record. But uh, what happened is that because Donald sent these things to other magazines, they started, you know, reviewing it or listing it. And then suddenly I just got tons of mail out of the blue. And then in December 81, when I was in Los Angeles, I was invited on the Rodney on the Rock show as a special guest. It was um, wow. me and then later in the show, uh, a band that ended up becoming really super famous later came having just released their first album, but they were kind of a, a metal band. <laughs> and I don't want to mention them. <laughs> they were really okay. nice to me. <laughs> Maybe I should just do it anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's your 40th birthday. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's always been bizarre to me that I was on with Motley Crue. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so like Vince Neil was handing me a copy of their first album. I later sold it for like $500. <laughs> Because it was, you know, independently released before they signed. I feel like you just gave me an exclusive on that. 
Well, I don't, it's not like supposed to be a secret. It's just, <laughs> I've never known what to make of it because it was so friendly. You yeah. know, maybe they were just starting out. And, but I, I had the show to myself for like 45 minutes and I brought tapes with me and he played Bad Brains and Even Worse and Stimulators and The Mad and all the, the brand new bands on the scene at the time, most of it, whom had no records. Uh, the Mad and the Bad Brains and Stimulators each had one single each. You know, Mad had two singles. So the rest of them were all demo tapes and stuff. And he played them all and he interviewed me and, and he let me give out my address and talk Amazing. about the magazine. And oh my God, when I got back to New York. I was going to say, post office hated you. <laughs> it was like the Easter Bunny dropped off a massive mail bag. Because <laughs> like, you know, his show was just listened to by every punk rocker in Los Angeles without question. Yeah. And he would play demo tapes of local bands like Bad Religion before they even had a record out. So. Uh, it was just the place to be on Saturday and Sunday nights if you weren't actually out at the gig. And that that's kind of how it went from there. And once once we started getting in fanzines and stuff like that, just tons of new people would come and ask for copies. And I'd mail them to them. Sure. And you're at this point, are you like, are you starting to like review stuff? Like how, what's your angle as things start to evolve with the mag with the magazine? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it was just a fanzine at first. So we would just talk about bands that had just come to town or were just coming, mention a few new recordings. It was kind of more like a, a newsletter style in a way because we didn't have a lot of space, you know, for, especially when it was four pages long, right? By the time we got out to 10 or 12 pages, some of those things got a little longer. And uh, when I got out of college in 85 and had a little more time, you know, when I wasn't doing all this endless uh, schoolwork, then it started to get longer still. It got to be 15, 20, 25, 30 pages around 85, 87. Then we printed our first interview in 87. Because uh, for three years, I was printing interviews in Interview Magazine. And I was the alternative editor for Rockpool. So I was interviewing like Husker Du and, and uh, REM for them. And Husker Du and Black Flag and DOA for interview and stuff like that. And uh, all the other indie rock bands too at the time. Like I did Salem 66 for East Village Eye, and I would do interviews for sporadic wow. droolings and generation. I never had any room for interviews in my own magazine. <laughs> it was too right. short. Right. But starting with a Buzzcocks interview in 87 that went on for like pages and pages, because it was two and a half hours with Steve Diggle. Uh, after that, we started doing interviews. And with that, the, the magazine just jumped up in length. And pretty soon I was doing 80, 90 pages, then 100, then 150, then 200, then 250. Yeah. It's just, you know, it yeah. just happened over the yeah. many years. It was never a, a grand plan. It just, you know, every issue I wanted to make better than the last one. And when you do that, you end up going from recording an album in a day, like the first Beatles album to like Sgt. Pepper in four years. Right. <laughs> you get a lot longer in your processes and you try to offer people a lot more. Not that I'm the Beatles. <laughs> I'm not. No. Limited knowledge. You know, one of the things I admire about you, Jack, is you've done, you know, you're clearly a writer, you're a musician, you have the, um, you know, your, your pod, well, I guess it's not a podcast, your radio show, um, you, DJ, you've done all of these things, but yet they all to me are about supporting other artists. And one of, one of the things I just, kind of have felt has has really shifted in music especially is this idea of people are so about self-promotion versus the collective and i'm just curious your thoughts as you've seen things shift to this sort of 
look at me model versus check out my music model. Well, they always kind of existed in tandem. You know, even in the, the vaunted punk rock days, there were always kind of these people leeching off of scenes yeah. or just they would always be wanting you to come to your, their gig and they'd never come to yours kind of people. We used to call them. And they'd be disdainful of people they didn't think were cool enough. Like I remember mm -hmm. once sitting backstage in Max's Kansas City on Park Avenue and I heard one of these people complaining about bridges and tunnels, tunnelers. And I said, to him, I said to him, like, well, well, how do you think I got here today? He goes, right. well, you live, you live in Manhattan. I see you here all the time. I go, I live in New Jersey. When I, <laughs> when I graduated from high school, I will move to Manhattan. But until then, my, my parents are tolerating this. So, you know, I never had any truck with that kind of attitude, this exclusionary yeah. or it's all about me attitude because I was having so much fun sharing things with people. Yeah. I mean, I, I had and I have an ego. I like a bit of flattery like anybody else, like the Lush song goes. You know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, remember the next line is that I don't need your practice lines, your school of charm mentality. And I, I don't like that either. And right. I can often tell when people are just buttering me up because they want me to write about them or something. And I always think that's crazy because I'm not Rolling Stone, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to make make or break your career. I'm just going to bring your music to some other real big music fans who might like you if they heard you. Right. I'll give you a good example. I interviewed John Peel, 88, 89, somewhere in there. And he had a lot more reason to crow than I ever will. I mean, he was the most <laughs> influential British DJ for underground music of the last 40 years. He yeah. really could, you know, make or break careers and did. And a lot of them were my favorite bands, like the Undertones, and stiff little fingers and the ruts and people like that. He was just absolutely instrumental mm -hmm. in uh, getting them record deals just by playing them when they were indie nobodies. And we have their albums to enjoy because of him. I, I was trying not to be too slavish in my praise for him when I interviewed him, but he wasn't having it because he said, look, you know, I just play the records. Mm -hmm. If nobody made any great records, then what would I be, what would I be playing? Right. And I know exactly what he meant because I feel the same way. I, I work my butt off to make a magazine and a weekly radio show. And I used to DJ in the clubs all the time, all through 80 and 81 and 82 and 79. All through, all through the 80s, I was DJing, I don't know, 50 to 100 gigs a year, which I really enjoyed. But to me, it was always about the collective fun that we we're having together. Mm -hmm. And we can only have that collective fun if people have that spirit because uh, you're going to do better work anyway if you're part of something and you're inspired by that. I mentioned the Beatles, you know, they were good friends with the Rolling Stones. And a lot of those bands knew each other, you know, the Hollies knew the Beatles. And they were all trying to one-up each other. It was mm -hmm. like friendly competition. You know, you, you see these films of the Beatles, you know, recording A Day in the Life and there's Donovan is there. And uh, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger are there and um, uh, some other musicians as well. And Graham Nash was there when they did All You Need Is Love, right? This is oh, uh, Michael Nesmith from The Monkees. He was there too when they did A Day in the Life. Just invited right. down, having fun, seeing what, checking out what each other was doing. I think that's when you get the best music. There are bands who can do some amazing things in complete isolation, all by themselves, but so much of the music we like has come out of that collective spirit. Right. And I think that's one of the things I'm a little, you know, concerned about. I've talked to a couple of my friends that own venues out here 
And, you know, as much as they're suffering from the financial loss, they're, they're really worried about the scene, like the idea of people coming together to watch live music. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we didn't find any value in it, we certainly wouldn't spend our time and money doing it. Right. I was in Seattle a couple of years ago seeing like a band, The Spits, play at Chop Suey. And I didn't even know anybody there, you know, but I could just sense it that people were really getting off on this gig and everybody was drinking and Kurt Block yeah. was DJing. <laughs> Reminded me of me. He was playing a lot of records I used to play when I was 18, 19. Awesome. Like uh, Dot Dash by Wire and Neat, Neat, Neat by The Den. I'm like, here I am in my 50s still getting off on somebody else playing these records for me. Yeah. So even when it's well, not your scene, you can totally sense it, you know? And I, I ran into a couple people who were subscribers of mine and I started drinking with them and then I felt really good because now I was, you know, <laughs> taking even greater part and shoot, shooting well, the bull, you know? You're in the in the presence of. Well, and it's I just nice to have someone to talk to because I couldn't talk to Kurt. He was working. <laughs> right. He was, he was I chatted, I chatted with him for five minutes between spins, you know? And I think the, uh, the idea of curation is something I don't like that word, but it kind of fits where you're talking about, you know, if John Peel played the record or I would put, you know, big takeover. If you review the record, the idea of going to a particular club, you know, that they have a high, uh, maybe they, they do something that, you know, you're going to like, even if you've never heard of the band, how do we like kind of preserve some of that as everybody has, you know, their own radio show, everyone has their own website. How do we kind of, maintain some sense of, you know, I can find somebody that's going to help me disseminate the millions of records or millions of songs that are out this year? Well, the answer to that would be three pronged. Uh, in the short term, we have all had to hit the pause button, you know, other than, like I said, Neil Young walking out of his front door in the snow <laughs> and being snowed on, you know, that was nice of him to share with me and me alone. I'm sorry you can't watch it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry for the absolute millions of people across right. the globe. Can sure. Right now with one click, suddenly be out in the snow in Colorado with Neil Young right. singing this absolutely gorgeous song. I don't have a concert to go to. And I'm sorry that, you know, there weren't 20,000 other people at Madison Square Garden watching him sing that song. But on the other hand, it felt like it was just me and him. If you watch Ben Gibbard's things that he's been doing, same yeah, thing. Cool. It's like, yeah. here he is. Here's Ben Gibbard singing a really personal and very direct version of a song I know a full band version of. And it's it feels like like I, I came over to visit him and said, hey, cool setup you got here. You mind playing me a couple songs? I know that's facetious. Right. And you're really like, like asking a doctor at a party, like, hey, I got this thing bothering me. <laughs> But then Ow. again, you know, he, he offered, right? He said, I'll do it, sure. And I, I, had, I have actual memories of that. Like uh, when we interviewed Jeff Tweedy in his studio in Chicago, me and Paul Regalbrook, one of my staffers, at the end of the interview, he picked up a, a acoustic and started just fooling around with it. And just as a joke, I yelled at him, hey, play Pink Moon by Nick Drake. And he, <laughs> shoots, he shoots us this look like I thought he was mad at me or something, but he starts yeah. turning the damn thing. And a second later, he launches into it and sings the entire song just for me and that's, Paul. That's amazing. <laughs> I have it on tape. I never turned off the tape player. And I yep. thought, yeah, that's why I like Jeff Tweedy, because he's the sort of guy who can be inspired like that. I asked for a song that was clearly a favorite of his. I didn't even know he knew it, let alone knew right. the words by heart. 
that's a lot to ask of somebody. But because two people love the song and wanted to hear it, he played it for us. And that's what people are doing right now on these things they share. There's more than one or two of us watching, but it might as well be just me and Ben Gibbard. It might as well be, you know, Greg and Ben Gibbard just hanging out, you know, having a beer. You know, uh, talking music like we do. So this is this is how we get through the pause that we are now. It's musicians reminding each other that this is how we got into this because we liked sharing our music and we liked hearing yeah. other people's great music. And then the longer term thing is that despite all the glut of music there is now that we've finally loosened the spigots, you know, we loosen the floodgates so that major labels don't complete control our market anymore and not even just made indie labels control the market anymore. Uh, there's still no lessening of people wanting to go out to see a band and yeah. take part in a live thing. It's the one healthy part of the music business. If a band wants to get paid now is that people will pay if they have any demand that at least people will pay to see them play and go on tour and they can sell some stuff at the merch table. And people are looking for something to do that isn't at home on a screen where they can commune with the other people like the chimpanzees and the dolphins. <laughs> and like me at Chop Suey, you know, talking with these two guys I met who are now friends of mine. I made two friends at that show. They were subscribers yep. of mine, but I didn't know them. They were people who sent me an email once in a while. And now when I go to Seattle, I make a point of looking them up. And when they come to New York, they come visit me. Uh, what's the incalculable benefit or something like that? Well, you're not going to make friends sitting at home once all this, you know, loosens up and uh, a great gig is really still a great hour of your time or an hour and a half yep. of your time. And I, every now and then I'll hear a song and I'll remember a live version. I heard that really moved me, whether it was at Madison square garden watching Simon and Garfunkel or, you know, the eight or nine Paul McCartney shows I saw or just some band playing for 12 people like the Wipers at the Grotto in 1987 in New Haven. You know, even right. though there were 12 of us, he just blew me away. And it was like the 10th time I'd seen him, too. <laughs> but just something about that gig was some of the best renditions I ever heard of those songs. And now Greg Sage hasn't played in 20, 25 years. So I remember them just as intently. That's something that's just not going to go away. And the right. third thing is that how do we get those people who really are doing something remarkable to cut through the glut? And that's why I still do what I do, because uh, me and other people like me, and even just people who don't have a magazine, but just take it upon themselves to share stuff on uh, Facebook or talk to people when they see them out around town. Like, yeah, I found this really great band, or I heard this really good record, or uh, this excellent group is coming here on tour on Tuesday. You ought to check them out. You know, that's how it all keeps going. It's just from people who generally love this stuff. No different than when I was 15, 16 and didn't know anything. Just people writing about it in the magazines I was reading. I haven't even mentioned Slash and Search and Destroy. Those two things became literally Bibles for me in mm. 78, 79, and 80. And it took me 20, 30 years, but I finally got up the courage to introduce myself to Vale of Search and Destroy and Research. And now he's one of my dearest friends. Awesome. Again, how, what, what price am I going to put on that? What price am I going to put on all the, the women that I've met through the stuff that I do uh, who became my girlfriends and, and for the last uh, 25 years, my, my wife, you right. know? Would, <laughs> would I have met any of those people if I didn't have this 
gigantic passion and want to share it with people and have them share it back to me. Where do you think I get a lot of the stuff I play? You know, people tell me about it and I check it out. I'm sure it was the same thing for John Peel or Legs McNeil or whoever, you know, moves someone else to try a record they might have missed elsewhere. So much of this stuff has no real great marketing budget behind it. It's not, you know, shoved down your throat. Right. You'll, you'll never hear it in the supermarket, you know, searching for toilet paper. Um, right. <laughs> it, North, needs, right. it needs a little something like that. Someone just saying, hey, I like this. I, I think other people should hear it. And if I, I can do it on a radio show or if I can do it in print or if I can do it in person, I can't think of any other place to do it. And as well, I make my own music and I try to share that with people so that I can, I can do it from that aspect too. And it's, right. it moves me to tears practically when people tell me they love a record I made in 1990, you know, 1988. Yeah. It was so much younger. I get right. that at least two or three times a week. Someone will send Springhouse a fan letter. People who weren't even born when we made our albums. And yeah. it's, just, it's just stunning to me. I, I had no idea if anybody would like our music, you know, even when we released it, let alone three decades later. And when we got invited to play the to co-headline that shoegaze festival in Michigan. And everybody said, yes, I was just over the moon because it's so much fun. Yeah. It's just lovely when you play music and people really get off on it and you can sense it. So well, I, I've been on, I've been on both sides of that. I've been the guy in the audience being completely moved. And I've been the guy whacking a drum set, you know, barely paying attention to the song. Cause I'm just feeling the room and you are too, Greg. Yeah. Well, I wanted to tell you, I, I, it's hard because I don't want to blow smoke up your ass, but I have about 20 cassettes still to this day. And my Springhouse cassette is still in rotation. <laughs> well, I don't think that's smoke at all. I spent so much time, you know, whether it was uh, Joe Strummer in 1979 or somebody else just saying, I really appreciate that you made music that I play a lot. You know, um, yeah. if I ever did meet Paul McCartney, I would tell him that. You know, I would, you know, add yeah. on to it, obviously. I'd ask him about Larry Williams. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because that's how I came across Larry Williams in the first place, because three of my Beatle records had a song written by L. Williams. I yeah. kept wondering who this L. Williams was that the Beatles kept covering. The early early stuff. Uh, well, they, early they recorded three of Larry Williams' songs on their actual EMI records. They Got did it. Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Slow Down, and Bad Boy. Got it. And I think in their Hamburg sets, they did a few more as well. All of them sung by um, by John. He was the go-to guy when they sang Larry Williams, the same way Paul sang all the Little Richard covers. Have you have you tried to interview Paul? Oh, I put in my request, but I'm not big enough fry for a guy like that. I'm still oh. amazed I got to interview people like uh, Ray Davies and that uh, he waved the publicist away like three times when she came to pick him up to take him awesome. to a much more high profile interview. Cause he just kept saying, I'm having fun. I'm having right. fun. I want to keep talking to him. You know, everybody else is trying to get pull quotes out of him, stirring up stuff about his brother or something. And I'm asking him, you know, is there, I'm telling him stuff like there must be a really great story behind a song like wicked out Annabella from 1968. I said, that just can't be fiction. I said to him and he just started laughing and he said, you nailed it. I said, well, who did, who inspired that? And she, he said, I had a girlfriend and her mother was such an ogre that even the postman was scared to deliver the mail. <laughs> and from that you get wicked Annabella, you know, if you're right. a fan of that album, like I am. 
And you know, that, that meant more to him talking to just some stupid 20,000 copy magazine than to be taken off to the next MTV interview that he was scheduled for. And I, the publicist was getting really upset, you know, for, to her mind, she's got this much more important thing to do. But, uh, for his mind, he was like, I've done a million interviews. Let me talk to this guy just because he's a fan. And he asks me questions about my music and he tells me about his own experience and other people who are my peers that I have met and tells me stories about them. And we end up just having a conversation that turns yeah. into an interview and people enjoy reading that. I've interviewed the pretty things, Brian Wilson in his own home. I mean, I, I remember Frankie Stubbs when I interviewed Leatherface, he said, my guitar took me all over the world and I can never be more grateful for that. I would never wow. have left Sunderland. What a know, great, alone what a come, great thing to, to yeah. frame. Like it's a great and, way to yeah. frame it. And I was sitting in a bar in Las Vegas doing that interview with him. And we're just looking around going like, yeah, you're right. I wouldn't be here attending your wedding if you didn't make records that I love so incredibly. Yeah. But here I am. And now he blames me for the wedding because I, they got divorced. He said, I <laughs> he said I should have talked him out of it. <laughs> it's all your but fault. It, was, it was a good interview and I knew what he meant because, you know, I've met I met Pete Townsend for 10 minutes one day and somehow yeah. managed not to melt like the <laughs> Wicked Witch of the West when you throw water on right? her. You know what I mean? Yeah. We ended up talking about, you know, uh, Bob Mould because he was a huge Bob Mould fan. And then I told him that I was friends with the Ruts because I knew he was friends with the Ruts. And he just yeah. started gushing about how incredible the Ruts were and how I should tell Dave and Segs hello the next time I speak to them. And you know, it's yeah. like I wasn't talking to a god anymore. I was talking right. to a fellow music fan. And then I was telling him about the many times I saw Screaming Jay Hawkins. I saw him like a dozen times because he had covered, uh, I put a spell on you in his set that day on the piano. Oh, wow. I did this great solo piano version Pete Townsend did. So this is what I do when I talk to these people. I, I know they're gods. Pete Townsend is a god. I'm sorry. He is. Yeah. But I, nobody really is one to me. There's flesh and blood and they're people who gave me so much music that I can't stop listening to. Mm-hmm. Just, just this week I played melancholy on melancholy on my show, which I came across from his scoop demos. And then the who version finally got released 12 years later. And both of those are just devastating. I didn't know about the demos. I'm gonna have to find those. Yeah. Scoop was 82 was when he put that out and I just devoured it. Cause I really loved the early who, especially that's my thing is 65 to 68. 6970 is the who I like yeah. best. And that was a 67 recording. And I, I've played the double album version of the who sell out probably 600 times in my life. And yeah. I just told him, I said, I want you to know that I've played your record 600 times. And I know it by heart because it just is so incredibly good to me. And I've just gotten so much out of your records. And then I told him that he should do a, co- a cover uh, the opening song off it the next night since he was playing with Bob Mould as the opener. I said, you know, Sugar was covering Armenia City in the Sky in their sets three or four years ago. Right. And he goes, I, I haven't, you know, played that song in 45 years. And I said, well, Bob can teach it to you. <laughs> I'm sure he <laughs> still he play remembers it? it. Did he play he it? He said, that's a great idea. We should do that. And of course they didn't. But I think Bob was kind of weirded out with the idea of, of doing it. And, <laughs> you know, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, you did your part. Yeah, I mean, this is what you do. You just, you just tell people, God, I really love what you do. So what, what you just said to me was Springhouse. Yeah. Uh, we're not the who we only sold 20,000 copies of our album. 
know, the who probably sold that in about four and a half seconds in 1972. But uh, we made those records because we loved making them. And that's why you make the records you do, Greg. Right. You know, when, when you press the playback on mm-hmm. a track you just recorded and it excites you, then that's intrinsic reward, reward enough. It was something creative, just like when my eight-year-old daughter sits down and paints a picture and then yeah. admires it. You know, it didn't exist before she sat down with her paintbrush. Right. And then the next thing, you know, you think, well, if I like it, if it excites me, not because I made it, but because I like it, then maybe other people might too. And then you release it and you finally do. They come to your gigs. They they come up and say, I enjoyed your performance. And you just look at them like, bless you. <laughs> Absolutely bless <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I was hoping you would, but you never know. <laughs> There was, I look at Vincent van Gogh. He made extraordinary paintings. Nobody bought them. Poor Vincent right. van Gogh. Maybe he wouldn't have, you know, off himself. There's no way to know because he might have just been depressed anyway. Success right. doesn't stop that. But perhaps if he had been better appreciated, you know, if his poor brother could have sold some paintings mm-hmm. uh, and he had someone come up and say, gosh, Vince, that uh, Starry Night picture you did, you Give know, that really moved me. Well, not only... Or even if they just said to him, look, I, I can't afford your painting. I'm really broke. Okay. But if I ever have $10, <laughs> right? if I ever have 15, uh, I guess it would be uh, Sue or Frank's. Or I was going to say, what was, yeah. the, what was the currency? Well, what were they having in, in Holland at that time? I don't know. If I ever have 10 bucks worth of Frank's, I, I intend to buy your painting because it really means a lot to me. I could stare yep. at it all day and- I took my kids and we stared at it all day for yeah. about 20 minutes a month ago before they shut everything down. That's we great. did. And I, I walked right up to it, to the, to the space where the guard would allow. And I pointed out the brush strokes to my son, who's 12, and my daughter was eight. And I said, look how thick the brush strokes are in the back where, mm-hmm. the, where the stars are. And look how thin they are in the front where the tree is. And that's how it gives you a perspective. And it's just a wild painting. And you can only mm. see it if you stand right here because you'll yeah. never see that on a reproduction. And that's what it's like going to a gig. Right. A record is a great thing. Playing, playing a gig, same thing. I'd rather play another tour with Springhouse like we did last year with the Chills than ever yeah. listen to another one of our recordings. But if someone was- puts it on, I'm perfectly happy to listen to it. You brought up something, a memory for me. There was a time in like the mid 2000s when I had people come up after gigs and we'd be, you know, trying to sell the merch and they would say, you know, my friend made a copy of your record for me, a copy of your CD for me. I already have it. And it was always such a weird moment for me because on one hand, they were enjoying the music and they had the music. But on the other hand, they got it as a copy from someone else. Right. Right. So we didn't get the, you know, gas money or whatever. Right. And wel- welcome to the upcoming digital age. <laughs> right. And I want to ask you because you keep using the word album and I'm an album person. I'm a long player kind of person. What do you think of the fact that everyone's like, it's all about the singles again. It's almost like the fifties all over again. And I want to, I kind of want to get your opinion on that versus. <laughs> well, this experience. Well, it's absolutely right. not for me. Right. I mean, all. I don't mind singles. I often love them. I will review them if they're extraordinary. It's not a, a problem with the idea. There've always been singles. Until 1948, there was nothing but singles. Right. So from 1880, when Edison 
you know, created the idea of modern recording with his team to 70 years later, you could only buy two songs at a time. One song in terms of cylinders, which was the format that Edison came up with. Right. So the idea of a single being unimportant is anthemia to me. On the other hand, you know, the album was invented in the late 40s. Within a decade, it stopped being just a collection of the latest singles with a couple extra tracks thrown in. And it exists to me as an art statement, a longer form art statement, in the same way that a novel is often more moving to me than a short story. I like, there's been been some short stories that just about rock my world, especially Chekhov. Mm. But the novels, like uh, my entire religious philosophy came from a two-page paragraph, a two-page chapter in a Steinbeck novel called East of Eden, Mm. when he starts talking about how the point of living is to make people sad when you're dead. And I thought, wow, that makes perfect sense to me. Try to make as many people sad when you die as you possibly can, yeah. because that means that, that people liked what you were doing and you gave something of yourselves to other people as opposed to being like a terrible plutocrat who just exploited people and you know left everyone to live in misery and chains. Because that's, that's the, the um, comparison that he makes to three or four moguls who he doesn't actually name, one of which I think is Rockefeller and one of which I think is Carnegie. Sure. And he, compa- he compares them to a labor leader who keeps getting jailed trying to help people, which uh, might have been uh, Samuel Gompers. I'm, I'm not sure. But he says, you know, when Samuel Gompers died, if I had that right, there was crying in the streets. Mm. And when the, like, the rich plutocrat died, people were like, well, I'm glad the bastard's dead. If he, if he gave nothing of himself, you know, right. if, if he didn't, if he didn't, uh, if he got his gains by exploiting other people and showing no concern for his fellow man, then it's, you're back to that Dickens story that we all know, The Christmas Carol. Right. Are you a Scrooge or are you a Scrooge after the ghost visit? I'd rather be the, the Scrooge after the ghost visit, personally. Right. And right. Pe- people watch that and they miss the point completely. Mankind is my business. And the, one of the finest things that mankind can do is share music. It's like I was saying with those instruments 2,000 years ago. So if you share it as a single instead of an album, I'm still interested. <laughs> but, you know, A Christmas Carol was not a short story. It was a short novel. And it's changed the thinking of people for, you know, for a millennium or a, a century now, century and a half. Jack, um, I feel like I could talk to you forever, but I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, if you How don't we mind... If I'm not taking up too much of yours, your questions are far too good for me to be doing anything else. So <laughs> well, there you you're go. you're into it, I'm in to keep I, going because you opened well, up Well, there's my appreciation to you. I mean, I can't just tell Joe Strummer how great he is if you're doing a good job. I like it when people have said that in the interviews I've done when they said, like, I enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. You asked some good yeah. questions. You, were, you knew something about me. I appreciate that you showed up, you know. Well, uh, here's another I, one. I did I did an interview with Robert Smith of the Cure, and we yeah. did it in a we did it in a bagel shop. Nice, because <laughs> you know who, that, wait, that who's, fit, who picked the bagel shop? Robert he or did. You? It was he he was hungry. <laughs> he said and he didn't care because it was Manhattan, and people look at him and go like that guy looks weird, or they recognized him. They probably thought it was someone dressed up like him. 
But he, he, yeah. the first thing he said to me is the publicist told me that you saw The Cure's first gig in New York in 79 when we were a trio. And I said, yeah, I did. And bang, <laughs> we're off. Yeah. He was yeah. like, I, I want to talk to you then. You know, same thing. You know, there are bigger organs. There are more famous outlets for a band that sells millions of records like The Cure. Yeah. But he, he knew me as a, a fan, you know, as someone who enjoyed his music and enjoyed other music at that time. We talked a lot about Susie and the Banshees, who he joined yeah. briefly. You know, I was telling him about some of the times I saw them and he, he would tell me about the times he saw them before he joined and stuff. And some of the things that happened on the tour he was at. And next thing you know, an hour and a half goes by. I didn't keep in touch with him, but, uh, you know, like Ray Davies actually wished me congratulations when my son was born through another big takeover interviewer. And I was just completely Amazing. shocked, you know, yeah. that he, moreover, his grace has nothing to do with me. You know, he's, you meet these people who are world famous and they have that kind of grace. And then you yeah. meet someone who's like the head of the bridge club in like uh, Walla Walla or something like that. And he wants you to like, <laughs> you know, lick his posterior because he's so important. And you're just I read like, that, screw you, buddy. <laughs> I read that Paul McCartney still sends physical birthday cards to a lot of people in his inner circle. I don't doubt it. Once in a while, he gets prickly when people invade his space because they're not being respectful of his fellow humanity. Sure. But almost in inevitably, everyone I know who's met Paul is like he was real friendly and said, thank you, which is what you do if you like other people. And if you say something that makes him laugh, he'll laugh, yeah. you know. If you if you remind him of something that's a good memory of him, he'll just like kind of chortle and slap you on the back or something when there's no social distancing. That's what you should be, man. This is a yep. this is a finite life, and we're all going to yep. be ground to dust eventually. So, or food for worms. So let's you know make the most of this while we're here. I gotta I ask you. Go ahead. Just just one other thing. Paul yep. McCartney is a living proof of John Steinbeck's writing because. Steinbeck wrote that right just around the time that Paul was born. Yeah. And when Paul dies, how many people are going to cry? Ugh. I cried every time I've seen him. I cry. Yeah. I'm, like I'm, I'm glad he's my, my 12 year old son said, make sure everybody please stay 10 feet away from Paul McCartney. It's true. <laughs> Cause he, he's seen Paul play twice and Caroline, my daughter has seen Paul play twice. And it just meant the world to them that they got to see him, Yeah, you know, that they lived in the same time as this man who gave yep. us so much. And uh, uh, before I put her to bed at night, Caroline always asked to see the free as a bird video just oh, because it, it's so moving to see, you know, that his three old friends made this song with him yeah. after he was dead. And they yeah. made this video that, you know, kind of shows all the little signposts of things that happened in their Beatles, very short um, career. Yeah. And in the in the real love video, you see Ringo and Paul and George hugging yeah. during the recording session in 1994. You know, but this thing that they did 24 years earlier, it had broken up, but they knew they had really done something together musically, and they were doing it together again with Jeff Emmerich. Yeah, and you see the three of them that are like swaying back and forth, singing along with the backing vocal and smiling. And having fun making a record together again. I'm sorry George died because they could do it again now. Yep. Yep, and for sure. It sold, I don't know, 20, 20 million copies. But even if only 10 people like me and, 
and you had liked it, they still had fun making it. Yep. And now my eight-year-old daughter has fun watching the video. And she got to see him play. How now, great. Speaking, speaking of How tears, great. did you catch the Iggy Pop uh, post-pop depression tour? I did not, but I really liked the album that he made with Josh Holmes. Is that his name? Yeah, they, the, the live show was spectacular. He, they came to San Francisco and uh, he, I don't know what happened, but like last, it was second to last song, I just started bawling. And who would think you would cry at an Iggy Pop show? Yeah. I've, I've interviewed Iggy twice now, uh, once in his home in Miami. And I, the first thing I said to him was the same thing. Every time I ever met him in the late 70s, early 80s, couldn't have been friendlier. Yeah. And again, the how many how many hours in my life have I spent listening to Iggy's Berlin records or the Stooges records or like fifteen different Stooges tapes and albums I have of them playing live, especially yeah. the Raw Power lineup. Jesus, what an incredible band! Yeah, and he's just been nothing but friendly and grateful that I like him and having fun talking to him. Uh, and I could see how you could be that moved because I was once sixteen years old hearing search and destroy for the first time and having my mouth come so far open, I could barely close it again. Yeah. And that was 1978. I first heard that record. You never forget things like that, that somebody gave you that. I'm a street yeah. walking cheetah with a heart full of napalm. Good God. Amazing. <laughs> Good, Amazing. Goodness gracious. Great balls of yeah. fire. I, I, I can see how anybody would cry. Again, not to mention John Peel again, but my favorite story he told me when I interviewed him is how much the song Teenage Kicks by the Undertones meant to him. Because I just interviewed Damien from the Undertones and yep. I'd met all those guys when the Undertones came over and opened for The Clash because they were backstage too. And he said that he was driving to a football match because John was a big football fan you know, going to an away match because he was that kind of supporter. And he got stuck in traffic on the motorway and he got be feeling really cross about that as you do. Like, I'm going to miss the match. This really stinks. And then the BBC DJ just put on Teenage Kicks, not for him, just, you know, for the heck of it. And yeah. he said, he said, I was, I started crying. And I was yeah. sitting behind the wheel going nowhere on the motorway and I just began bawling. At the time, he was probably 50 years old. 52 and the song was already like um 10 years old by then yeah and here's this grown man beloved by millions just you know having these tears fall down his cheek onto his lap in front of the steering wheel just because one song came on his radio so i i completely uh i completely dig what you're saying there greg if i saw a really great iggy pop gig on that tour i might have felt the same way like god this guy's been doing it so long for us he's history he's like up there he's history there and he he's and he's current history yeah, you know that present, i don't have present. to play the idiot or lust for life or new values or, or raw power or you know any of those live records or the the um the demos of the four stooges album that never came out rubber legs right. that kind of stuff i need to stand here and listen to his brand new record and you know Again, bless you. What's his name? Josh Holm, is it? Josh Holm, yeah. I don't even know anything about him, but what a brilliant idea to, yeah. you know, actually call up, you know, the studio, hands the studio and everybody involved with those records and say, I want to, you know, replicate those techniques just for new material. Yeah. And it's and, a great record. And they made a great record. And uh, Iggy, Iggy, I think, was really inspired by that. 
Iggy's always been great when he has a great backing band. Yeah. The, I played a song on my show just Monday of the Iggy Pop 1979 tour I saw three times when he had Brian James of the Damned on guitar, Glenn Matlock of the Sex Pistols on bass, the late Ivan Kral, who died two months ago from Patti Smith's band on keyboards, and Kraus Kruger from the Berlin Bowie days on drums. And good God, again, just knockout shows. Watching Brian James play New Values, his, his hand went up and down the strings like looking at a Geiger counter (laughs) <laughs> or one of those like you know needles that just kind of goes up and down in a very even flow yeah. lightning speeds and iggy came out for like four minutes he danced doing that crazy crazy you know throwing his arms and legs in every direction dance and then came in for the first note of real cool time or whatever it is they were opening with and just banged it out like he had just been standing still yeah like i would have been like <gasps> <laughs> Yeah, After no. four solid minutes of that, let alone singing. He's, he, he said he has good, breathing techniques for that. He, It's amazing how intimate, like I feel like I know people like that just from their records. Yeah. Like I feel like there's some way they're communicating to me that I know something about them that people that yeah. don't know the music well, don't know. Well, he was a contemporary of Engelbert Humperdinck. When was the last time you listened to him? Oh, man. That was my mom's. She, she loved right. Engelbert. Yeah, I mean, popular artist, top 10 in the charts, had plenty of fans. Why did we listen to, you know, a 1969 Stooges record and we don't like go like, no, uh, take that off. You really need to put on Engelbert's record instead. (laughs) Apparently we don't do that. There must be a reason. Yeah. I rank my top 40 every issue based on how many times I play a record. I don't actually jot it down anywhere because that would be idiotic. It's just a general sense. What of these records did I play the most? And if I played that the most, that must have been the best record I heard in the last six months. And it's possible that if you buy it too, that you'll play it the most too. That's the the recordings I'm looking for. And the ones that are the best ones are the ones I'm still playing the most, whether it's the the Who Sell Out or Revolver or Sleep No More by Comset Angels or, you know, some incredible Neil Young recording. It doesn't even matter. Could be anything. Could be like Astrid Gilberto singing um, "Bossa Nova." If 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 I love it, I'm still going to love it many years later, and I'm going to be moved to hear it again. Some of those Marvin Gaye recordings, you know, like "You" or "Chained" or something like that. Just good. Holy cow! What a performance! Yeah, Otis Redding. My God. Meeting Jerry Lee Lewis when I was 22 and shaking his hand and just staring at him like. Yeah. You are a marvel. How the hell did you ever come into existence? How could you possibly have done those things you did? How could you have made Live at the Star Club in 64? Is that human? Yeah. Or did, did you make a deal with the devil to be able to sing and play the piano like that? Are you Robert Johnson? Well, are they going to steal your soul when you finally go, Jerry Lee? And, and you listen to that stuff now, and you're like, it has something that nothing of like that was recorded with 60 mics, you know? Yeah, it's just... Well, Though that's probably why they couldn't they couldn't neuter him with overdubs and pitch shifting and taking every single note that he sang and looking for the best version out of 40, 40 recordings he did of it. Right. They had no choice but to record live Little Richard and Larry Williams and Johnny Guitar Watson and Bo Diddley and all those people who made my favorite 50s records. They made these absolutely 
And they had top-notch bands. You know, you had Earl Palmer to play the drums on a lot of those Little Richard and Larry Williams records and stuff. I mean, great for you. <laughs> Give me yeah. Earl Palmer any day. Uh, Lloyd Price, his first big hit, he had Fats Domino on the piano. Wasn't even a star yet. Just, right. you know, well-known in the, in the R&B scene. I'd like to have Fats Domino play piano on my record. That sounds pretty damn cool. But yeah, that's that's one of the reasons you have top-notch musicians, though, because you're wasting studio time if you have three or four takes to get a, a record done with everybody playing and singing at the same time. And as a result, they're basically live records when you think about it. Yeah. Even the early Beatles records or, or um, Vince Taylor and the Playboys, you know, those are four-track with not a ton of overdubs. Right. We did, um, when we were on the tour last year, we stopped at a bunch of old studios. We went to Sun and we went to the Muscle Shoals uh, studios. And I I've couldn't help but have these moments where you realize that it really is about Hello? the people in the, in, in the room back. at the right time. I'm sorry, I lost you for a little. Can you repeat that? Yeah, no worries. I, we, we did, when we were touring around last year, we stopped at a bunch of old studios, we went to Sun Studios and Muscle Shoals. Oh, yeah. Sun Studios. And I went there. And you just realize it's it's not it's not about the technology, you know. No, it was a it's garage, about, wasn't it? No, yeah, it's, it's like a it's garage a in Memphis. With the right people. Although, did you do this test that I do when I go in the studio? I clapped. Clap. Always got to clap. Yep. Yeah. I went to Motown. Clapped. I always yeah. clapped. I've been that's in some drummer. dead studios, and the Sun exactly. Studios was not dead. No, it was a dead room. But that's the drummer in you that claps when you walk into a room. Well, somebody taught me that the first time I went into a studio. Um, in the very early 80s, late 70s, they said, this is how you know it's a live room. If you clap, see what comes back to you. It's true even in, in gigs, you know? Yep. And, and I, I'd be a, remiss. I did want to ask you, do you have any, like, favorite rooms that you've played that you want to, like, the standouts? First Avenue in Minneapolis, uh, mm -hmm. where, where Prince made Purple Rain. I think they've been there like 50 years. We opened, Springhouse opened there for Belly and Velocity Girl. And we played for 1,100 people, which was 200 more than even worse ever did, even opening for the Misfits. <laughs> so, um, and the local paper, the city paper, embarrassed me by saying unkind things about Belly and uh, saying very kind things about our band that you needed to get there at five o'clock when Springhouse right. goes on. And that, that was embarrassing to me because I was a Belly fan and I'd met Tanya uh, at the throwing muses gigs I'd seen. And I knew she yeah. was a sweetheart. And the first thing I saw when I ran into her to sound check is I apologized profusely, even though I had nothing to do with it. And she just laughed and said, Oh, we get plenty of praise. You enjoy it. Which was typical Tanya, <laughs> very typical Tanya. And then gracious. We, well, thanks to that again, you know, when writers have some influence and they use it to talk about something they love, they helped our band immeasurably because it was yeah. an all ages gig at five o'clock and young people don't know to miss the opening band anyway. That's a great thing right. about open young people. And then here's this, you know, thing saying that they should see our band. We sold a ton of records in the four or five days before we went on to that gig, you know, Amazing. between the time that was published. And then there were in fact, 1100 people waiting for us instead of 300 while it filled up later. And after every song, we got this massive applause and uh, Tanya being Tanya and her band being her band, they let us use the drum riser, which doesn't usually happen when you're in the first band of three. They gave us 50 minutes instead of 30 because that's the kind of people they were. 
And when we were finished, there was this great thunderous evasion. And the three of us walked down the little four thing stairway, listening to it going like, wow, isn't that great? And Tanya comes go over and she says, hey, they're calling for another one. Go out there. And I said, oh, well, wow. we can't. I said, we can't do that, Tanya. She said, why not? I said, the first band of three does not do an encore, Tanya. That's just not right. And she says, well, I'm the headline band, and I say it's okay. And she pushes me backwards up these four stairs in full view of the entire crowd. Amazing. And I'm walking backwards up these stairs onto the stage, and people double their applause. Yeah. Oh, the first thing she said is, why, don't you know any more songs? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, we know plenty more songs. It's just the, the first band doesn't do an encore. That's just not right. So there I am walking up the stairs backwards, and people are cheering. And I look over it, and Larry and Mitch are just laughing. And I said, well, you better get your ass up here because <laughs> I'm up here by myself. I mean, how could you forget something like that? The, the room was incredible. The sound yeah. was Im impeccable. You know, back in the even worse days in 1980, I wouldn't even get a monitor. A lot of times right. they wouldn't even mic the drums. Right. And here I am, every single thing I touch goes bang in the monitor next to me. And my vocal has come through uh, crystal clear on the couple songs I sing lead on. I mean, it was just heaven on earth for a day in 1993. I, I feel like Minneapolis is still to this day a great supporter of live rock and roll. It always was. I'd been there in the late 80s. And had seen some gigs there and hung out with the people I knew there. And I always felt that way. And I've always talked with other Minneapolis musicians about it. Like when I interviewed Bob Mould last year for our cover, we started talking about all the gigs that he booked at uh, Goofy's Upper Deck. You know, he actually booked them. He would help yep. like discharge, bring their amps up the flight of stairs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> discharge yeah. or whatever, or whoever it was. The idea of that camaraderie and that that helpfulness. Yeah. It and he put like out bands on his own label. He was he was Reflex Records, Bob Mould. Yeah. Yeah. He released a whole bunch of lesser known bands. And as a result, I reviewed them in our chintzy little pages in my little fanzine. Yeah. And as a result, more people would read that and they'd become interested in those bands could tour, you know, not from me, but from the collective response. So we got to see the replacements in Husker Du here in 83 together. And I was the gig I DJed at the Gildersleeves. Oh, man. That sounds it, legendary. It was, except that only four of us liked it. It was <laughs> me and Jesse Mallon, Robert Criscow, of all people. Wow. And, and about like two other people and about 95 people dressed all punk rock in 1983, uh, scowling at the band, especially who's could do, because neither yeah. one of them dressed punk rock. Right. And I thought, boy, do you people miss the point. Have you never would have been part of our scene five years ago because we didn't think that way. Right. So that, well, I mean, there you go. I've had plenty of gigs, just those gigs last year with the chills. You know, people couldn't have been nicer to us. You go away for a long time, people really appreciate you for starters, but just the fact yeah. that they had our records and they brought them up to be signed and stuff. And we're just the opening band, you know, the chills were so incredible. I was like, go ask them to sign their records, man. Thank you, Jack. That's part one of my conversation with him. Part two will be out in a couple weeks. Until then, check out Big Takeover, magazine, radio show, online presence, and do yourself a favor and wash your hands. Limited knowledge.